Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Chief Operating Officer of the Government Accountability Office has received recognition from a leading University of Public Administration program. Oris Williams-Brown, who's worked at GAO for more than 30 years, got the Excellence in Federal Leadership Award from the Public Administration and Policy Department at American University. Ms. Brown joins me now, and it's good to have you back. And you are now the, or have been for some time now, the Chief Operating Officer of the GAO. And tell us, why did they give you the award? Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. And, um, you know, interesting question. So when I looked at the nomination, Jean Dodaro, the Comptroller General, nominated me for this award. With this award, they really look for two things. One, they look for executives that are really focused on executing the mission, carrying out an agency's mission. But also, and as importantly, they look for leaders who are focused on developing and investing in the next generation of leaders in their organization. That appears to be the big driver in terms of how I was selected to be one of the recipients of the award. And investing in the next generation, that means one thing in the private sector, in the public sector, well, you can promote people quickly and give them responsibility quickly. You can't give them stock options. You can't give them giant bonuses, maybe sometimes some something of a bonus, but not like corporate. And so right. maybe discuss what some of the challenges are in bringing people along where, well, you're not going to get triple the money here, but you'll get triple the responsibility. Yes. I mean, I think when people are attracted to public service, it really is about the mission of helping the government function. And in GAO's case, it's helping the government function for the benefit of the American people. So when I think about kind of that investment and in giving back to, to future leaders, it really is training, mentoring, coaching, ensuring that they're getting all of the tools that they need to effectively execute their jobs. And one of the things in having students Stewardship of GAO, I think, must be in your mind. It would be in my mind. Let's put it that way. And that is GAO has been relatively or maybe totally free of the kind of sort of periodic scandals and giant failures that plague almost every institution in public life, public and private. And the continuity of maintaining a certain level of standards and excellence, that's, I believe, is probably the chief challenge. What is the GAO thinking on that? So I think... Knock we, on wood, as they say. Yes, yes. We, we continue to really focus as we bring people into the organization. There is a definite recognition that you're part of the accountability community. And we stress that we have to, because we are going into other agencies, we're looking at what they're doing and how they're functioning. So we also have to make sure that we turn a critical eye internally and make sure that we are walking the talk. We recognize that we live in a glass house. And I think we have to make sure that we are also being responsible stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. And that's something that we really do work hard to instill into folks when they come into the organization. And it's something that carries forward. In the decisions that I make, I'm always thinking, you know, yes, I'm Oris, the, the GAO employee, but there's also Oris, the taxpayer, who's sitting on my shoulder saying, like, you know, is that the, the highest, best use of taxpayer dollars? And GAO regularly finds 
finds things that are embarrassing, frankly, to agencies. And yet I've never heard a GAO person say, look what those idiots did. Or, and I imagine that's not what you say to them either. And do you ever, would you fire someone or do you watch for people that maybe take that attitude because, hey, I'm from GAO. How could you morons have let this program get to the state? It's always in a respectful way that problems are laid out with an objective issues tone and not a personal tone. Yes, because, I mean, we want to make sure, one, that we are, that we're being respectful. We want to make sure that we are, we mean it when we say we're here to help. And that's what we let agencies know, that we really are in the business of not only helping Congress carry out its constitutional responsibilities, but making sure that agencies are working efficiently and effectively for the American people. And in order for us to do that, we have to make sure that we are sharing what we find that's based on the evidence, letting the evidence speak for itself, and then also communicating in a constructive way. And we work hard to make sure that our engagement is constructive. We're speaking with Oris Williams-Brown. She's the chief operating officer for the GAO and the recipient of the Roger W. Jones Award for Excellence in Federal Leadership, given every year by American University. And you've been at GAO, I think, what, 30 years plus now. And yes. give us a quick review. So I came to GAO directly from graduate school. I, unlike a lot of folks that, that are going into public service today, I did not set out to be a public servant. I have an MBA. Uh, my plan was to work on Wall Street, and that was what I thought I was going to do with my life. I came out of graduate school at a time when Wall Street was really flooded with folks with lots of experience and MBAs and being a newly minted MBA and my job prospects on Wall Street weren't great at that particular time. I started thinking about other alternatives. GAO recruited on uh, campus and I went to an information session, was not familiar with GAO, didn't really want to work in federal service, but the mission of the agency intrigued me. So I thought, why not give it a try? Found out we had an office in, in Norfolk and it was close to Virginia Beach. And I said, maybe a cool place to work for a couple of years and then, you know, move on to my intended career. But my very first week on the job, I knew this was going to be my career. The mission of the agency, very first week, you know, went on an interview to interview one of the local county executives the bill the ability to get out on the audit trail and to be part of the accountability community and you know make sure that the government's being responsible stewards of the taxpayer money really spoke to me so i grew up in the organization i started uh, with an entry level position and i have moved up throughout the organization i've spent a big part of my career doing work in the financial markets and housing area and then as i moved into senior management. I spent several years in our Office of Congressional Relations before becoming the Chief Operating Officer. So when I work with leaders, I can honestly say I've been where they are in many cases because I've done most of those positions in the organization. Do you ever think about the millions and billions you forewent? because you didn't stay on Wall Street or didn't join Wall Street and stick around? You know, sometimes, yes. But I think what I've gotten out of being a public servant, I think I have earned in many other more meaningful ways. 
And what's your best advice for those that are coming into the workforce now? They face an economy and a political situation in a future that probably didn't look as great to people like you that joined the workforce some 30 years ago or me close to 50 years ago. Yeah, no, it's different. But I think in many ways, many of the employees out of, of the future are also not totally tied to the paycheck. They also want purpose in in their their careers and I think the government is a way to to have that. You can have that purpose. And uh, if you want to have an impact on people's lives, this is a way to do it because the federal government, it touches so many aspects of our lives and in many ways kind of behind the scenes to make sure we are safe and taken care of. Oris Williams-Brown is Chief Operating Officer of the Government Accountability Office and recipient of this year's Roger W. Jones Award for Excellence in Federal Leadership from American University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview you along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.